Welcome to the ETAP Podcast, a service of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Each month, we'll provide information and insight into environmental issues important to state transportation officials. So glad you could join us for another episode of Ashto's ETAP Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. On the first episode of the ETAP Podcast Equity Series, we sat down with Keith Baker, Executive Director of the nonprofit Reconnect Rondo. Keith shined a light on the great impacts of the Federal Highway Act of 1956 in the community of Rondo. During the late 1950s through early 1960s, Rondo was divided by the construction of Interstate 94, disconnecting individuals from the rest of St. Paul, Minnesota, demolishing 300 businesses, and forcing 700 families out of their homes. The repercussions of this decades-old decision continue to resonate today. Yet, Rondo's story is not unique. This story has and continues to appear throughout the United States. In response to these stories, grant opportunities are now available to support nonprofit organizations as well as local and state governments in their efforts to reconnect communities that have been isolated from opportunities and burdened by past transportation infrastructure decisions. As a leader in community reconnection, Reconnect Rondo hosted its Reconnecting Communities Summit, which welcomed over 150 communities from across the country. These communities either secured grants, applied for them, or are actively engaged in similar efforts. In this episode, you'll hear interviews from attendees at the Reconnecting Communities Summit. These projects are leading efforts to bridge a better tomorrow for all of its residents. Among those in attendance at the summit was J.T. Flowers. Flowers heads strategic communications for the Albina Vision Trust in Portland, Oregon. Flowers gave some background on the organization. We represent the Albina community in Portland, Oregon. So uh, historic Albina uh, was home to 80% of Portland's black population in the 60s and 70s. However, as we know, the forces of urban renewal and gentrification uh, over the course of decades pushed all of our folks out of that district. Now Lower Albina, which is this 94-acre stretch of prime center city real estate right on the Willamette River, which is the main body of water that runs through Portland, is home to one housing building, one singular housing building called the Paramount Apartments. It has around 70 units of housing. The rest of that 94-acre district is all commercial space. And by commercial space, I don't mean restaurants, I don't mean clubs, I don't mean small businesses, I mean parking lots and two large sports stadiums. Flowers told us a bit more about Albina One and where they are in the process. You could think of it as the cornerstone for this broader 94-acre effort to rebuild all of Lower Albina. We're actually very privileged to be working with uh, a number of community-based organizations to provide on-site services for residents of that building. And we have the, the privilege of being in a city where our public policy-making mechanisms um, are also aligned with this broader goal of racial equity, racial justice, and healing the harms of the past. So uh, what we are intending to do over the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years is to rebuild not just the neighborhood in the heart of Lower Albina, but a full-on district that is accessible and safe and oriented towards black abundance, black joy, and black wealth creation in the heart of Portland. We also asked Flowers why he attended the summit and what he hopes to take away from it. We came to this summit primarily, uh, one, just to, to meet folks who are doing similar work across the country and to acquire some sort of 
technical expertise. These communities are so similar in many of the ways that their problems manifest across the country. The story of urban Portland is very similar to the story of Austin, very similar to the story of St. Paul or Minneapolis. So for us, the goal was to more broadly align our efforts to link arms with folks doing similar work and to hopefully share information. I think one of the central things that we've taken away from this conference is the importance of storytelling in a national framework rather than just a local framework. This is a much broader movement for racial justice and for restorative, reparative redevelopment um, that doesn't just include or encompass one small geographic area. It encompasses the whole history and legacy of racism, of urban renewal, and of systemic oppression across the United States of America. So that's something that's large looming in mind for us. The technical expertise aspect of things is also critical. Understanding the importance of building technological infrastructure so that our economies have the opportunity to thrive, not just 10 years from now, but 50 years from now, is vitally important to ensuring that our community has the opportunity to benefit from the growth and development of these neighborhoods and districts that we're in the process of building. And then lastly, I think a big aspect of this conference for us has really been understanding the importance of being public facing with our relationship building. We have very similar relationships to the, the very beautiful and interconnected relationships the Reconnect Rondo project has, but we hadn't thought to be as out front with those relationships. It really adds strength and viability to a movement when you can have everybody arms linked stepping into the spotlight together to say, hey, this matters to us and we are fighting for this alongside one another rather than doing that work in isolation. So we're grateful to be here. Our work also involves a highway cover project. It, it would be the covering of I-5, but as I said, that's only 12 acres of a broader 94 acre vision. So it's been an honor to be here, been an honor to learn from y'all, and we hope to continue working in a partnership moving forward. In Salt Lake City, there's a long history of the community being divided by a transportation corridor. The first split between the east and west sides of the city was in the 1870s when the railroad came through town. The railroad remains, and the situation was compounded in the second half of the 20th century when a freeway further bifurcated the city. Heather McLaughlin Kolb, a transportation planning manager for Salt Lake City, explains the project she's working on. So our project is Critical Connections, Healing Salt Lake City's East-West Divide. Um, it's in Salt Lake City, uh, surrounding the railroad and I-15. Of course, a summit like this is designed to share information and lessons learned with others in similar situations. McLaughlin Kolb talked about why she came to the summit. The reason that I came to this summit is because we really wanted to learn more about a project, how it could be community driven um, from the bottom up versus the top down. And we wanted ideas to learn how to better do that in our community. Heather didn't hold back when asked what she learned. A lot. <laughs> There's so many ideas I can take back to our division and um, we can utilize uh, for our project. Um, and I think that will really make our project uh, a stellar project. Casey James traveled to St. Paul from Seattle. Much like Rondo, the South Park neighborhood in Seattle was bisected by a limited access highway. James, who works in strategic development for the Seattle Office of Planning and Community Development, gives us more detail about South Park and the challenges it faces. 
So I'm partnering with the South Park community, which is a um, community in the sort of south side of Seattle, and the project is Reconnect South Park. So Reconnect South Park grew out of the advocacy of the South Park community um, that you know, we're concerned with the impacts of a particular segment of roadway, SR99, that divides right through their neighborhood. Uh, the neighborhood is only one mile, uh, one square mile, and uh, it has two different highways that cut through. It's also surrounded by industrial areas. There's multiple flight paths that cross overhead, and the adjacent river is also a super fun site. So there's all these layered different environmental injustices that this community has to face um, that lead to 13-year lower life expectancy than other neighborhoods in Seattle. Um, they have the most youth per capita of any neighborhood in Seattle, but all the places where youth congregate and spend their time are directly adjacent to the highway. The, the library, the elementary school, the play fields. Um, and so these community members got together and you know, thought, like, is it possible that we could actually change this? Does this have to stay this way? South Park is like really an, an incredible place. The community members there, there's so many different organizations and volunteers that spend endless amount of hours out in community, like trying to create opportunities for the youth, trying to create a better you know, environmental condition. And so um, it's been really inspiring to get to work with them on this. And we're really in an early stage. So right now everything's on the table from turning the highway into more of a boulevard or an arterial, uh, or to remove it entirely, maybe put it underground. So right now we're just at the very beginning. Everything's on the table, um, trying to have these community conversations. So there's a coalition of different community leaders representing different community-based organizations that are out there talking to their neighbors, um, trying to talk about this idea. They're going to work towards a community vision plan. And then I'm helping to lead some technical studies to support that work, um, provide all the information that the need to know to be able to make that decision um, and there's also a, a community advisory board that's overseeing that technical work to make sure that it's in line with community goals and priorities. James says we've reached a moment where there's wider realization of the harm that was done to communities by the building of highways and that funding is now available to address that damage. We're sort of at this moment where you know communities that have been impacted by these decisions long known that you know, there was an injustice there, right? Um, but that's just starting to move into this mainstream space and getting these real funding opportunities attached to it. And so, you know, it's, it's a really exciting moment, but it can also feel really isolating, you know, for the community members that are out there sort of talking about what might feel like a crazy idea to some folks, you know, um, and for me trying to navigate these processes without having, you know, a roadmap for, for how we do this, right? And so, um, I think it's really exciting to come to a space where I can hear from all these different uh, perspectives and you know we have we've had academics and politicians and technical experts and community experts that have all been here at the table um, you know sharing their different contexts and, and the ways that they're approaching the work and I think that's just been so invaluable and amazing to hear from and uh, especially like the elders that were there when when this actually went in and, and have been on the front lines of trying to you know create a change try to rebuild some of what was taken um, and uh, and yeah so just you know being able to build out that network of connections that we can then you know learn from each other and continue to build the work together uh, moving forward. It's just been a, an incredible experience. Not all those in attendance were there representing communities. Gretchen Chavez is the Chief of Innovative Programs in the Division of Local Assistance at Caltrans. She was asked why she attended the summit. My office is implementing a new pilot program in the state of California. 
the state uh, made available $149 million for us to pilot a Reconnecting Communities Highways to Boulevards program. And we are in the midst of building that program. We've developed program guidelines, applications went out, and we are now evaluating those applications. And we hope to select our pilot communities to work with by the end of this calendar year. Chavez said learning how Rondo and other neighborhoods have involved community in their efforts was an important aspect of what she learned from the summit. This summit was a really great opportunity for us to see how other communities, particularly Rondo, has actually implemented the idea of community involvement. And this is a cornerstone to the pilot program that we're building, where we want the communities to decide how they want to be reconnected. The government made the decision to build a freeway that demolished communities, and we want to not be the entity that makes the decision on how they want to be mended. So looking at the Rondo community here in Minneapolis and understanding the steps that Rondo has taken to complete a vision to bring the community together and to really develop an idea of what could be possible in their community has been super beneficial for me. And understanding how we could possibly approach the same way the communities in California and the communities that we want to help through this pilot program are building. The story of the Black Bottom neighborhood in Detroit shares similarities with Rondo, Albina, and South Park. However, as Lauren Hood, co-chair of Detroit's Reparations Task Force notes, there is a major difference with Black Bottom. The project that we have that mirrors Rondo is I-375 is being raised up to be a surface boulevard and it's the highway that displaced the community of Black Bottom. But what's different about our displaced community is that it's not there. So Rondo got the highway and it's still here. Our, our community no longer exists. So we're trying to figure out, not just in that area, but citywide, what kind of repair is necessary. The situation in Detroit is at an earlier stage than where Rondo has progressed. As a result, Hood came to the summit with a different goal. I think I really wanted to learn how you get broad buy-in around a reparative strategy. Oddly enough, in Detroit, where we are overwhelmingly black, a lot of our stakeholders on this project and just um, folks in decision-making positions aren't using this kind of language. So I wanted to go to a place where they were a little farther along in developing reparative strategies and having folks at every level buy into it. Folks and institutions at every level buy into it. The big takeaway from the summit for Hood is the need to involve elected officials, including those at the state level. So aside from what we learned in the main room, there was a conversation at lunch that was really enlightening. Um, and it involved things happening at like the state level that we hadn't anticipated, like senators getting involved and other kinds of legislators. So understanding that it's not just the work of activists and organizations, but we're going to have to rally certain politicians in different ways to get, get the broad buy-in that we need to get it done. I'd like to thank all of our guests on this month's episode, J.T. Flowers, Gretchen Chavez, Casey James, Lauren Hood, and Heather McLaughlin-Kolb. Thanks also to those who worked behind the scenes to make this show possible, April Ray, Najee Kirby, Keith Baker, Jenna Jimenez, John Dean, Tierra Whitmore, Allie Friedman, and Wanahavi Waisi. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us again for future episodes and check out our library of past shows.